Okay. Uh, I don't know exactly what a post-coronavirus mandate church will look like, but the elders have already started talking about doing that in, in stages, and we'll have more information forthcoming. It won't be like a, a light switch on and off in which we go full blast, but uh, I do anticipate greatly being able to see you face to face. I love this technology. We've done some really wonderful things with it, and I appreciate all the efforts that have gone into it. But nonetheless, there's something that I miss very greatly about this face-to-face -face, uh, stuff. So look forward to that greatly. Got a call yesterday afternoon from Michelle Williams, and she was so excited that uh, there was this kids class yesterday. And I tell you, you kids are amazing. She said that uh, this is approximately first grade to fourth grade, grade, give or take. She said that all of you were ready to do the, the Bible lesson. All of you uh, were ready with the technology and put a lot of us adults to shame with your uh, the, <laughs> how these kids understand the technology. Uh, that, that all of, of you were, were very polite and respectful to everyone else that was on the video conference. And she was so impressed and so excited about everything that went on there that uh, I'll tell you what, uh, kids, you make us all very, very proud. And uh, you must have some extraordinary parents. We appreciate them as well. So it's good to, good to see you, good to see everybody uh, this morning. I preached on prayer a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Luke 18, the importunate widow, the, the persistent widow, and was asked if I could follow that lesson up with another lesson on when God says no. So let me bring that PowerPoint up very quickly. And uh, let's start that from the beginning. What about those times when God says no? That may not be the kind of lesson that we want to hear at a time like this, particularly when people are at their wit's end. They are frustrated beyond measure. And perhaps the lesson that, that we need to hear is when God says yes. But all of us know, if we've been at this for any time at all, that there are times in our lives when we pray and pray and pray some more, and God does not seem to answer immediately the way that we would want. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there are many Psalms in which the psalmists pour out their souls to God, begging him to answer and even pleading with him in frustration as if he is not answering. And so this is nothing new. But having said that, I think the natural default that we as believers need to have is a recognition of how many times God says yes in answer to our prayers. James 5, 14 through 16, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If I read this correctly, the natural default position of a believer is that God answers prayer, that he answers prayer in amazing ways, and that we ought to be in a position of readiness to witness the answers to our prayers that we will see constantly as we go to him in prayer. There was a certain governor of one of the eastern states this last week who talked about the human intervention in response to the coronavirus. And this is what this governor said. The number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not, did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. I wish the governor had given a little more credit to God. I really believe that even though there are human agencies involved and that God does expect us to do what we can. When we offer up prayer, we need to be consistent with those prayers, with our own actions, and we need to make sacrifices, do whatever it takes to be consistent with our prayers. But having said all, all that, I believe that the natural default position of every believer is that when we go to God in prayer and we don't realize all the agencies involved behind the scenes, that we must give God the credit, the glory, and the thanksgiving for the answers to prayers that we receive, even though we may not know all that he has or has not done behind the scenes, but to naturally believe that he's doing a whole lot more than we ever dreamed. And I really believe that with all my heart, that more often than not, God does heal the sick. This is a general truth. More often than not, he does answer prayer and in amazing ways, and he gives the answer yes far more frequently than we perhaps give him credit for. But having said that, there are times when, when we, we may wonder, why isn't there a big fat yes, and why not now? And so we linger in frustration from time to time, even when we are like that importunate or relentless widow who prays and prays and prays some more. We have faith, we have staying power, we have steadfast endurance, and, and there are times when God doesn't seem to answer on the terms that we would like him to answer, and we may with despair be tempted to give up hope, maybe entirely too soon. What then? There are inadequate solutions to this question. And one of them is, well, there's just no God. You're praying to the air. The fool has said in his own heart, there is no God. That's an inadequate solution because there is a God. And I'm not going to to spend time proving that point. A 
I'll simply say that that's not the answer to this dilemma. Someone else says, well, God wound up the universe and then went off into the wild blue yonder as an absentee landlord, as deism teaches, that he's not active in the affairs of mankind, that there's no interaction, that ultimately prayer has nothing to do uh, or nothing but a, but a psychological benefit. No, that's not the case either. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 8, that your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Now, he wants us to ask anyway. There is this interactive relationship with God because he is a personal God, he's a relational God, he's a covenant God, and he wants us to depend upon him and to learn dependence in the various prayers that we offer over the years. But nonetheless, he knows what we need, and the reason he knows what we need is because he's involved in our lives, and he wants to be involved in our lives. So that's not the answer. Someone else says, well, God wants to answer, but he simply cannot, and maybe he's too impotent. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book some years ago, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his basic answer was, God would like to give us a favorable answer, but there are things that he simply cannot do. And so he limited the power of God. Again, I find this wholly inadequate and unbiblical. In Psalm 139, we have a psalm about the power of God. David prays, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known when I sit down and rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God is all-knowing, omniscient. He's, every, he, he's all-knowing, all he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. So this idea that God somehow cannot come through for us is, uh, is also a, 
a false concept. We need to be aware that God is abundantly beyond all that we ask or think in his abilities uh, toward us, as Ephesians 3 and verse 20 said. Then there's Calvinism's God, a God who micromanages every detail. And as we were talking about in class this morning, uh, a God, a false God, who pre-programs every detail in advance. So even when we pray, God has determined exactly what we pray and exactly what response he will give long in advance. And so it's all part of a pre-programmed plan in which we are programmed in advance every single detail, and there's no interaction of prayer that could actually change things. Again, that's not the God that I read about in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 32, for example, God is just totally fed up with the Israelites and threatens to destroy them altogether, and Moses intercedes on their behalf, and he begs God not to destroy them. And he begs God on behalf of negative consequences that would befall the Israelites and the, the glorious name of God if he does destroy them. And so verse 14 of Exodus 32 says, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I have to take that at face value, that God really did intend to destroy the Israelites and that because of Moses' intercession, he relented of those intentions. We have in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 7 through 10, that God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do for it. Now, therefore, I say to you, the men of Israel and the inhabitants of uh, Judah, or Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. And then he urges them, return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. And so God is holding out for them possibility of avoiding the great calamity that he has promised to send them. So God does change his mind in response to human action, and I believe in response to human prayer. We have adequate evidence of this over and over again in the pages of Holy Scripture. As it relates to prayer, Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24, he answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. There's an aorist, essentially past tense verb, Believe that it's done. Believe that you received it already, and it will be yours. That should be our natural default. That should be the general rule of thumb as we approach God to expect an answer and to expect even a yes answer. And we know it doesn't always happen like that, but we can never 
ask without faith. Faith is, is extremely important in this process. In James chapter 1, for example, verses 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, we have the general default is God will answer, and God will answer with a resounding yes. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. But the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we have a lot of false uh, conclusions, a lot of false concepts. The general default for the believer is that we have a relationship with God. We have a prayer hearing God, a God who answers prayers, a God who answers favorably, generally speaking. Why then would God sometimes answer no? If that's the general default that God answers yes, that God intercedes in our lives in favorable ways, why do we have those disappointing no answers? Again, the Bible does give us some help along these lines. Let's look at, at some of the reasons why a lack of faith would obviously be one of them. I don't have that listed here in the following chart, but it's implied in the preceding chart. Number one, we have to come to realize that, that God sees what we do not see, and he knows what we do not know. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and He's passing through what we would call modern Turkey. Beginning with verse 6, we read, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want you to notice here in uh, verses 6 and 7 in particular, that they're passing in a westerly direction. And they want to go to, to Phrygia or they want to go to uh, Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit answers no. They want to go south, the answer is no. And then they want to go to uh, Mysia and Bithynia, they want to go north. And the Spirit of Jesus answers no. And so they, they go, they continue to go west, they stop at the seacoast town of Troas, and um, uh, there, Paul has this vision of the man from Macedonia, and they cross the Aegean Sea, they go into Macedonia, they stop at Philippi, and later on in chapter 16, there is a conversion of Lydia, who is from Thyatira. Thyatira happens to be in Asia Minor. Holy Spirit had forbidden Paul to preach in Asia Minor. And yet the first converts in Philippi 
are Lydia and her household. Lydia is from Asia Minor. Interestingly enough, from the very region where the Holy Spirit had told Paul to, not to go. And there are times like that when God has a bigger plan and a better idea than what we dream. He knows what we do not know. He sees what we do not see. He sees the bigger picture. And sometimes his providential direction in our lives is on a much bigger scale than the small boxes that we create for ourselves. And there are times when we, we just don't see what he sees, and therefore we have to trust him. There are other times when we fail to ask. Maybe we do give up too soon, and we fail to be persistent in our, in our prayers. In James chapter 4 and verse 2, James says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Obviously, we're not going to receive favorable answers to our prayers if we fail to, to ask in prayer or if we fail to be persistent in our prayers. It may be that we ask with wrong motives. In verse 3, the next verse, James adds, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, on your passions, your pleasures, as some translations say. I want to make mention uh, of this in connection with the next point because we may not be asking according to God's will and uh, everything that we ask in prayer should be prefaced with the understanding if it's not overtly stated at least inherently understood that your will not mine be done in first john 5 for example in verses 14 and 15 this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him now, the will of God can be a very tricky thing to define. You have the true will of God, you have the revealed will of God, you have the true, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the permissive will of God. The true will of God involves things that we may know from Scripture, and it's broader than that. It may, it may involve things that are unrevealed that we do not know for sure. There may be times when God reveals himself on an issue when we ought not to be praying for something that he expressly forbids. For example, in Jeremiah 7 and verse 16, as well as several other passages in Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. I will not hear that prayer. Well, that's a tough thing for a human being to, to, to be passionate about. Here I want to pray for a lost people who desperately need God's help. And yet God is done with them. And so he says, do not pray for them. And therefore, Jeremiah is kind of between a rock and a hard place because God has revealed himself in that manner. Do not pray for these Judahites. I'm done with them. There are other times when, when we may not know the answers to a prayer. We may not know God's will 100% because he simply has not revealed himself in, in that regard, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were confident 
that God would deliver them from the fiery furnace. And yet they tell King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, 16 through 18, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner, in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Notice that their natural default is God is able and God is willing. So far as, as we can determine, he is able and willing to do the extraordinary. But notice that they qualify that answer in the very next verse, verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that we have set up. They realized in their humility that, that God is able, and we think that God is willing, but it's not for us to determine this matter for God. If God wills, we will be delivered. But even if not, we're not going to serve your image. God be praised. Leave the matter in God's hands. We're going to do what we can and let God do what he wills. You know the rest of the story. God not only was able, but also willing on that particular occasion. And what a great occasion it was. There may be sin in our lives that prevents God from answering yes. And I don't want you to automatically assume that if you get uh, what seems to be a no over a great deal of time, that you automatically conclude that there's sin in your life. But we do need to be humble enough and introspective enough to realize that that if there is repentance that we must offer, that we must take a good hard look at ourselves and pray God with renewed intensity uh, in that matter. First Peter 3 and verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we need to repent, we, we ought to repent. Uh, in verse uh, 7, of the same chapter, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, husbands dwell with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A husband who is not treating his wife in a godly way is probably not praying like he should. But even if he is, his prayer life is not going to be what it ought to be and what it should be. The interaction with God will be woefully deficient, and God's answer to some of those prayers may even be no. He needs to do some repenting and get right with God and then go to God in his humble prayer. Now, this list is not complete, and I'm going to say this, that even if you're praying for all the right things, for all the right reasons, on all the right occasions, there still may be times when God's answer is no because of a bigger, bigger scheme of things that he sees that we do not see. I'll give you two cases in, in, in mind, and they're really important ones. 
Some requests do not serve God's purposes in the bigger scheme of things. And uh, one of the cases that comes to mind is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has this thorn. And I don't know exactly what the thorn was. He mentions at the end of verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 12, weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And it may well be that the thorn was the composite of all of these things put together that were an impediment in Paul's life. Others have suggested that Paul's thorn was made, uh, possibly some physical deformity or infirmity. What if Paul, because of, uh, for example, the, the uh, stoning that he had experienced, uh, maybe he had a limp. Maybe it was difficult for him to travel. Maybe he wanted that removed for the greater glory of being able to, to, to continue his, his journeys in an unimpeded way. He evidently has all the right reasons for praying for a removal of this thorn. And yet God's answer is no. Read it with me, beginning with verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We think about this. If Paul had gotten a yes answer to that, would he be more useful to the cause of Christ than without whatever infirmity he is alluding to here? How badly did Paul want this thorn removed? He repeatedly goes to God in prayer for the removal of the thorn. And yet God's answer was essentially was, you are a more useful servant to me with this than without it. And therefore the answer is going to be no. Paul helped others who had similar thorns. He helped others who had similar infirmities because he had an infirmity and could bear it along with them. I really believe in my heart of hearts that most adversity for the faithful Christian is, a, is an opportunity disguised to advance the cause of Christ or to do extraordinary things that we otherwise would not be able to do without the adversity that has been placed upon us. Some years ago, my first wife was suffering the terrible throes of in, inflammatory breast cancer. And I prayed like I've never prayed before. In fact, I went to God 
with the boldness or the, the foolishness, you might say, of saying that I am a humble man and she is my one little ewe lamb. This is all I've got. Do not take her away. And six years to the day, she died of complications of that cancer. Six years from the very diagnosis to the day of her death, same day on the calendar year, or the, the calendar day on, on in the calendar. And yet I reflect back on those six years. They were some of the best of my life. They were rich, full of, of opportunities. And, and what grew out of that were opportunities for Cheryl to help thousands of people because of the infirmity that she had had, and for me to help thousands of people as a consequence of, of what I had to go through as a supportive husband. There were lectureships, there, there was a book, there were untold opportunities to help all kinds of people that grew out of that. I think of, of my daughters who were in unbelievable pain having to cope with that. And yet I see evidences of their spiritual growth to this day, of them being able to help hundreds and hundreds of people in ways they never would have been able to do without having undergone that experience. And I think of Cheryl being in a much, much better situation now that she's gone on to glory. I would not have had it for, for me, and I would not wish this upon anyone else. But in retrospect, I have to admit that God had a bigger plan than I did, and that that bigger plan has served his purposes in ways far beyond my limited ways to imagine it in advance. I'll give you another example of God saying no. God had a better idea. Paul now saw now value in his thorns. And he said, most gladly, I'm well content. Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. According to Luke's account, he prayed as it were with great drops of blood coming down from him. That was the human side of Jesus coming out. We know that in the bigger scheme of things, that there was great blessing because of the suffering of death. He was ultimately crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. We know in the bigger scheme of things that even Jesus resigned himself to this for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But in between those two passages in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 7, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God's answer was no, there's no other way. And so Jesus joyfully went through this terrible ordeal, the excruciating pain and suffering of a cross. I'll tell you something. When I reflect on that, the great blessing of God saying no, that I realize in my more honest moments of thinking through all of that, that God's no to Jesus was a yes to me. Have you ever thought about that? If God's no to Jesus was a yes to me, then maybe, just maybe, some of his no's to me is a yes to someone I haven't even thought about. Where I must redirect my attention, my energies, my investments. And maybe there'll be someone out there who will be thanking God one day that God said no to a door of opportunity I wanted thrown open. And God left it closed so that a door of opportunity might be open that was bigger than the one I wanted open. So I was able to help someone else that I never even dreamed of helping because of an open door when the one I wanted open remained closed. Bottom line in all of this, the blessing of denied requests. It may well be that God has a better idea, a wider perspective, a bigger plan. It may well be that only in retrospect do we see God's better idea, wider perspective, and bigger plan. Even when I think about the no that, that God evidently processed in my prayers on behalf of my first wife, Cheryl. I went through a period of, of tremendous pain. And like Job, my fortunes were restored in a great, great way. God sent a, a wonderful German wife that has blessed my life in, a, in amazing ways. And God has blessed me with more years of service. And I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for how all of this has played out. We need to back up, look at the bigger picture. Do we have the trust and appreciation to offer thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us? Even to offer thanks and appreciation for some of those no answers that we may not fully process at the time. To say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
and after everything is said and done, to realize that that uh, God is uh, is not our cosmic vending machine. That if we view prayer as a glorified wish list, and God as a cosmic Santa Claus or a cosmic vending vending machine or a genie out of our bottle on our terms, according to our agenda, saying your wish is my command. But that's not how this works. That the ultimate goal of prayer is to realize that we have this amazing navigation system and a navigator who is helping us negotiate the ups and downs of this life in keeping with the ultimate purpose of this life. We may not have all the resolutions in this life that we want worked out exactly on our terms. It doesn't work out that way, unfortunately. But if God puts us in, in positions where we can serve him faithfully, and he puts us in position to cross that finish line, we can say in retrospect that we have this amazing navigator and we can say, as Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And if he helps get us safely across to the other side and answers that prayer, as well as thousands of other prayers in getting us to that point, I suspect that we will soon forget about the disappointments of this life. As eternity opens up before our eyes and we are able to rejoice with all the faithful of all the ages and celebrate that we have a prayer hearing God and a prayer answering God. And it will be the yes prayers that we ultimately remember, not those no prayers. I hope that we can all keep this in ultimate perspective. That's the lesson for today. You need to obey the gospel of Christ. That prayer hearing God is ready to welcome you into his family upon your obedience to the gospel. We want to help you, but he wants to help you even more. And if you need to pray for forgiveness of sin, he's ready and willing to receive you. It's an amazing prayer that he's ready to answer if you give your heart to him.